Good morning, uh, sinners. What aren't you? We all are, right? So, apparently, it's not a good idea to preach about sin. Lots of churches don't do that. But this morning, we're going to hear some about that. And I want to give you an opportunity to think about your own so long. You've got a few of those. I have a few of those. And I've got to deal with those. And so, you have too. We're busy with a series of lessons. We're dealing with Matthew 24, verse 12. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. Jesus is making a prophecy. He's making a prediction that as the world progresses, becomes more evil, the love of most people will grow cold. And so the increase of evilness is juxtaposed towards the increase of a lack of love. And this question in the series is this. How do we stay warm in a world that is getting colder? Last week, I suggested one of the great things that we can do in the winter when it gets colder is to do what? Is to cuddle, to huddle up a little bit, to get, to get warm. That is fellowship. That is spending time with each other, spending time with God's people. And I quoted, used this famous verse that we, uh, those of us who have been in church have grown up with, that teaches us about having to uh, connect with each other, having to go to church. Remember? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 to 25. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. And what was so important, what I tried to push out last week, and I hope it got stuck into our minds, is that we don't go to church so that we can just listen to a sermon, so we can sing. We can do all of that stuff at home. The big thing that we cannot do at home, on our lounge, in front of our TV, is love our brother and our sister in Christ. And that's the fundamental reason why this text is calling us. And you can be present without participating. You can be here this morning without encouraging anybody. You walk in, you walk out. You've listened to the sermon and you feel maybe you've obeyed a law of God. No, you haven't. You've, you haven't obeyed this scripture. What does it help? We meet and we don't encourage each other. And so that's fundamental. That's what we spoke about last week. So to help us stay warm in this world that is getting colder, one of the things we could do is we could spend time with one another. And then this morning, um, for in case you didn't see uh, the image or, or the, the title there for this morning's lesson is to take a nice bath, right? Okay, I'll switch it over. For just for this morning, you won't hear this again. Bath. <laughs> Take a nice bath. A nice bath can keep you warm for about an hour. Isn't it so? Take a nice bath. The people, just quick hands, like, who takes a bath regularly? Or is that like a weird thing? All right, so the rest of you are dirty. Okay. I grew up pretty poor, and we had to conserve water. And so when cousins came to visit, you would bath in one another's water. That's horrible, right? It's like there's only one bath of water, bath of water and you gotta, all of you got to go through this thing. And you rushed for the first one in line. Because if you were third or fourth, hee <laughs> hee. 
It looked like dishwashing water by the time that you got in there. All kinds of funny creatures in there. Nevertheless, um, I mean, the East, the people in the East say that we are crazy for having a, a bath because you sit in your own dirt, really. And so they think we are crazy, right? Um, but in the middle of the winter months, taking a nice bath, yeah, it's incredible. It does some incredible things. Now, it, I take it if you put up your hand and you say, well, you don't take baths, hopefully you do take a shower now and then. Okay, and so the shower has got the ability to also get rid of some uh, dirt, but um, the shower doesn't make you as warm, does it? I mean, I get into the back here in the baptistry, and the baptistry is quite a big area. You know, when I get out of there, it feels like I'm dying after a shower. It's so cold because you just had a little bit of glimpses of warm water, and now suddenly it's cold again. And so the shower is, the shower is not as effective in keeping you warm. The bath is really, um, it's like the shower is sort of a shortcut. And I don't know how well you wash yourself in the shower, but generally if you go bath for an hour and you've got some bubble bath in there, I think you, when you get out, you're warmer and maybe a little bit cleaner because some of the grime under your, thing, your, your, your nails and, and your body has really uh, washed off. This morning, I want to talk about repentance, washing away sin. The text of our series says that wickedness increases and thereby it produces coldness in us. The more wicked the world becomes, the more wicked we become, the more cold we will be in our love towards each other. Therefore, repentance from wickedness is something that will increase our warmness because it brings us closer to God. This is a verse that we know very well. This is a verse that needs to be imprinted on our minds always that we need to keep with us. Listen, Isaiah 59 verse 1. The Lord's arm is not too weak to save you, nor is his ear too deaf to hear your call. It's your sins that have cut you off from God. Because of your sins, he has turned away and he will not listen anymore. So wickedness and lawlessness and sin separates us from God. Repentance of it draws us closer to God. And the closer we are to God, the warmer we will be. I hope that makes sense. And so what makes us cold so often is our own sin. God is warm and in his presence is warmth. Now, just like we do in our um, physical lives, we we take a quick shower to wash off some dirt. I would like to submit to you today that that's how we sometimes treat our spiritual lives as well. We treat our sin the same way. We have shower repentance. Well, I suppose I have to take a quick shower so that I don't walk around stinky. The same way we come to the Lord's table, for example, once a week. It's like, okay, let me think about my sin quickly and just shower some blessings on it quickly and repent some a little bit of it and think about it for a, a little while. And, and you walk away again and you, you don't develop that warmth that you're supposed to be developing by sitting in a bath of repentance. Taking time to simmer in what is separating you from God. We've got to make time. But you've got to make time to get in a bath now and then to just sit down 
enjoy the heat, wash yourself properly. You go in your spiritual life, make time to get into a bath of repentance where you say, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to think deeply about my sin. Carefully consider my relationship with God. Let the truth of my own condition sink into my mind so I can wash it off properly. How often do you do that? Do you really sit back and pause deeply and confess your sin to somebody that you trust even? Do you remember James chapter 5 verse 16? It says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of, a right, of the righteous is powerful and effective. How often do you come before God and cry out to him honestly about your sin and submit to him? Now, we know the famous story about David and, and Bathsheba, right? You know the story, hopefully. If you don't, I want to challenge you to go home, read through it, 2 Kings chapter 11 to 12. I'm not going to dive deeply into it, but David is supposed to be at war. He's not at war with the army. He's sitting in his palace, relaxing, right? Great lesson. You want to make a mess of your life, um, don't do, fulfill your responsibilities. Then Satan comes and he tempts you. He's walking on his balcony. He overlooks and he says, oh, there's a lady taking a, a bath. She's at least washing herself, right? So he sees her and he says, okay, that looks incredible. Um, why don't I get her over here? And so he sends some guys to go fetch her. She comes to his palace. She's probably like overwhelmed. The king wants to see me. Oh, lo and behold, things go a little bit pear-shaped over there. He has intercourse with her. A few weeks later, she lets him know that she's pregnant. And then David goes on this journey to try and cover up the mess that he had made. He tries to get her husband back home who's on the battlefield to come and sleep with her so that it looks like he impregnated her. He comes back, he refuses to sleep inside the house. Because how can he sleep in the warmth of his wife's bosom while all of his friends are on the battlefield fighting for Israel? What an incredible man. And that shows you that Uriah was indeed an incredible man. And so David has got this battle to try and fix this issue. So he says, okay, well, let's send him back to war and let him get killed. And he gets killed in the battle. I'm, I'm skipping some details, but I'm just giving you the gist of the story. And David's like, okay, the problem is solved. He's dead now. The issue is gone. And then Nathan comes to him in chapter 12 and says to him, hey, man, you sinned. You, you need to think about this, man. You need, you need to take a bath. You need to do some washing in your own life. Because you didn't even realize that you are deeply stuck in dirt. It's incredible to have a friend like that. Who's honest enough to tell you, hey man, you are in sin. Do you have a friend like that? Well, God says then to, um, you know, David immediately accepts, oh my goodness, you're right, I'm a sinner, and I'm sinning, this is bad. And God still says to him, okay, I accept your repentance, but you need to know your son with her, he's going to die. That's the way sin works. Sin works this way, it's like God is willing to forgive us, but there's consequences we still have to carry as we walk this, this road of life. And there's a beautiful passage. Look at this. In 2 Samuel 12, 16 to 18. 
God tells him, your son's going to die, right? And this kid is, 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 coming, is coming to the world. And then the text says, David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground. He wouldn't come up from the ground, but he refused and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. So what do we see? David realizes his sin and he sees the consequences and the punishment of the sin. And what does he do? He goes on his face on the ground for seven days. Talking to God, crying out to God, repenting, thinking. I don't know what's he doing on the ground. But it's bad. It's really, it's really tough for him. And then after seven days, the child dies. You know what David does immediately when he realizes the child dies? Then David got up from the ground. And he, after he had washed, it seems like for seven days he did not take a shower. Put on lotions. Changed his clothes. He went into the house of the Lord and he worshipped. And then he went to his own house. And at his request they served him food and he ate. That's incredible. So he's on his face on the ground. For seven days. Begging for his son. And then his son dies. And then he's like. Okay now I can go worship shower. And now I can eat. It's like he's celebrating death. But if you go read the story. You'll see what David says. David says, well, in those seven days before he died, I was pleading God because maybe God could forgive me and, and, and he could spare this son of mine. But he didn't. And so there's no need for me to cry and plead anymore because he's dead. I will go to him. He won't come back to me. And he worships God. Now, when I read that, I, I find it incredible how David's relationship with God works. At one point, he's on his knees and he's begging and he's pleading and he's hurting. And the next point, he's worshiping God in the temple. It's like at one point, his sin is getting him down on the ground. And the next point, he doesn't care about his sin anymore, but he praises God. It's like, it's like sin separated him from God. And then his repentance restored him to God. A beautiful picture of how our God works works we see david being a cold-hearted killer distant from god an adulterer and then after he encountered nathan he finds himself worshiping in god's temple and god blesses him with the son solomon after this from that marriage with that girl how is that possible something happened between david's sin and David's son. Something happened there. And I don't know about you. But when you read the Bible. And you read between the lines. You, you, you wonder. What, 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 what exactly did David say to God? Those seven days. Wouldn't you want to be there in the room. And hear what David is saying. What does it look like. When a man after God's own heart. Prays to God. In repentance. After a big sin like this. Well here's the beautiful thing. We have a piece of writing from David. That he did write. Somewhere between. His encounter with Nathan. And it seems like the death of his son. Somewhere between those seven days. 
And it's in your Bible. It's in Psalm 51. And I want us to just read it this morning. You know, one of the hardest things is I've got to pray on a Sunday morning and I've got to ask God to help me to feel what I'm going to say. Not just think it. Not just be up here. And as we are going to read now what David says, I want to challenge you to ask, you, ask God, pray, pray, and ask God to help you feel what David is saying. Because we're not there. It would have been such a different story if we were there in the room with him when he said these words. Think carefully about what he's saying and see if you can apply it to your own life. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. It's like he's saying to God, God, I want you to wash me. You put me in the bath and you wash me because I can't wash myself. I need you to clean me from the inside out. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judged. judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. I want to point out three things. Just three things this morning briefly to challenge us. Three things in our prayer, our soaking prayer that we need to take in and think about. Number one, see your sin. See your sin. David says to God, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Listen to what he says. He says, for I know... My transgressions. My sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And then he says, surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And then he says, hide your face from my sin. Blot out all my iniquity. David knows his sin. He knows it very well. He acknowledged his sin. He's sure of his sin. He understands it. Pause for a moment. Do you know your sin? 
Can you put a name to it? Can you write it down? Do you understand it? And let's think for a moment. Do you know why David knew his sin so well? Go back to the story. He had a friend who told him. Do you have a friend that's deep enough stuck in your life that can tell you, man, you have sin? It's eating you, it's killing you, and it's putting you in opposition to God. That's what James 5.16 says. James says we've got to go look for this friend so we can get closer to him. David does not take his eyes off his, off his sin. He knows exactly what it is. Why? Because he learned something. It is so easy to let your, slip, your sin slip by undetected. Undetected sin is the most dangerous sin. The most dangerous sin. It's like... You have a disease and it's making you sick and you don't know why. That's one of the biggest battles that I struggle with in ministry. I, I see people, I meet people, and I can so clearly see the sin that's causing their destruction, but they can't see it. And I've got to sort of tell them, hey, dude, man, if you just repent of your sin, you just sit down, take a bath, think carefully about the mess, the decisions that you make, the actions that you take, you will see how your life will change. You're sick. But you don't understand that you have a disease. So undetected sin ends up becoming unrepented sin. Because if you don't know you have it, you never have to repent of it. Secondly, David knows the depth of his sin. For David's sin wasn't just a mistake. David uses multiple different words for sin in the text. If you go look at the Hebrew, he talks about iniquities and evil. He uses the word evil. I've done evil. I've offended God. I am in rebellion to God. He calls it perversity. When David talks about himself, he says, this is perverse. And he says, it's a crime. It's a crime against heaven, what I'm doing. He calls it out for what it is. We have to be so careful of sweet Talking sin. It is what it is. And then David takes it further and he, and he accepts that he is a sinner. He's not just somebody who committed a sin or has committed multiple sins. He says, I'm a sinful person from birth. I've been sinning since birth, he says. He's exaggerating his whole experience and he says, well, if I look back carefully at my life, I've made so many messes. I am indeed a sinner. And that aligns with Romans 3.23, right? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all have it. So David concludes after checking his sin and he says, I need a wash. I need to be washed. I need some deep cleaning. And I need God to do it. Because I can't do it myself. I need to soak in that tub. I can see how dirty I am. When you see your sin, you will want to take a bath. You cannot listen carefully. It's just, it's, it's just so hard, this condition that we find ourselves in. It's like, it's like we want to be so close to God. We want to feel His warmth. But we don't want to deal with the sin that separates us from Him. That's why we never get the proximity. 
Proximity starts by cutting off the dirt in your life. You cannot get closer to God with hidden, undetected, or ignored sin. You can't. People often feel God is distant. And 99% of the time, the reason is unrepented sin. Oh, but Lord, I go to church every Sunday. I'm supposed to be feeling warm. Oh, but Lord, I sing praises in your name. I'm supposed to be feeling warm. God's like, I've, I've turned my face away from you because you continue with that sin. I've distanced myself from you. 1 John 1, 8 to 10, we know this. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. And so there's none of us that can sit here this morning and say, well, this lesson is irrelevant to me. None of us can sit here this morning and say, well, I don't have to listen to what this guy is saying. I don't have sin that separates me from God. Yes, you do. I do. I've got to go sit in a bath of repentance and I've got to go think, what is it? What's my thing? What's this thing in my life that keeps me separate from God? Got to deal with that. So we all have this and we all have different levels of sin. All sin is offensive to God. But ladies and gentlemen, all sin don't carry the same gravity and the same consequences. Unfortunately, this is a saying that, oh, I, I don't know how the saying has been around here, but all sin is sin. We've heard that before. All sin, yes, all sin does separate us from God, but there's different levels of gravity of it. Jesus says that there is a sin that's unforgivable, blasphemy. That tells me that there are sins that are forgivable. First John, I think chapter 5, John talks about sin that leads to death. So there are sins that don't lead to death. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and he says, sexual sin is different because it's sinning against your own body. So there's different types of sin that produces different types of consequences. And so, yes, this morning, we all have sin, but they might be at different levels. Maybe we're not all adulterers or fornicators, but there's some other things that might be underlying. And here's the thing about Satan. He wants you to sin in ways that you don't even know that you are. Attitudes. The way that we view people. James also says something interesting. If you know what's right and good to do and you don't do it, that is sin. So that's also another category of sin. Well, there's something that God wants me to do, but I don't do it. So you think you're not sinning. Yes, you are. And it's separating you from God. So we all have to go, go home and we've got to go get out our Excel spreadsheet quickly. And like just check quickly, like where do I fit in? Where am I? Sinning against the creator of heaven and earth. And when I do that, I'll get closer to him. And suddenly there will be a different warmth that I'll experience from him. So I've sort of, and I know I've taken license here, but I've sort of tried to put it into three categories. If we want to put sin into categories, I would put it into these. Number one, this serious sin. And you might say, well, all sin is serious. I agree. All sin separates us from God. But I've just illustrated just briefly to you that there's different types of sin in the Bible. Some that lead to death and some that don't. Some that's unforgivable. Well, one that's unforgivable and others that are forgivable. But there's serious sin. Think for a moment. And I know all of, all of us, we, 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 look, we look incredible here this morning. Thank you for all the makeup and, and, and G-Man for his shiny head. That's incredible. You guys look great. 
But it doesn't mean that you don't have serious sin in your life. And I don't know. I might have serious sin in my life. You won't know. Adultery. Fornication. Things like pornography. That lie. That big lie. That tax evasion. Money that you don't pay back. That you owe someone. Debt that you don't pay back. Life-altering, destructive sins. Secondly, then there's silly sin. Probably you would say there isn't such a thing as silly sin. This is me speaking. I'm too lazy to sit on my chair. But you know what I mean. This is me speaking. Those once-off stupid things that we do. We can call it the mampara sins. Unnecessary and trivial sin that is not godly, but not deadly. And maybe thirdly, there's the selfish sin. And I think most Christians battle with this one. I know what God wants me to do, but I'm not going to do it. Or I'm doing what is best for me without caring about others. Maybe you know your sin, maybe you don't. I want to challenge you this morning to take a bath Come into God's presence and use the soap. And the question is this, and this is another big battle that I have in ministry. Is there is only one soap to use. There's only one soap that works. And it's a divine soap. That's why David says, you wash me. Well, how would God wash you? He washes you through his word. And I can pull out so many scriptures that tells us, that, that, that indicates that type of Thinking, the scriptures is what washes us. How would you know that you're off track if you never read the Bible? You won't know. The Bible is a sword that cuts and divides, opens up, reveals disease within us. And those of you who've read the Bible for a while, you'll know that what I'm saying is true. You get to a text and you realize, oh my goodness, this is revealing a, a kink in my armor. I've been making a mess here. If we don't spend time in the Bible... You know, like this saying, yeah, sin will keep you from the Bible and the Bible will keep you from sin. Very good statement. Very true statement. All right, let's go. Number two, seek your savior. So number one, see your sin. Number two, seek your savior. We have to face our sin. And if we don't, we stay sick and we stay distant from God. One of the reasons why we avoid our sin is because we know how big, bad and ugly it is. And we believe that God won't forgive us. And I've got to be honest with you. When I look at David. I mean look at what he did. He committed murder. He impregnated a woman that wasn't his wife. So he's a fornicator. And he's an adulterer. He goes into his room and he cries about it for seven days. So we, we, that's about nine months. Right? Nine months that he carried the sin with him. And then he repents. He's taken somebody's life. And a baby was killed because of him. He goes for seven days and he repents and he calls upon God for assistance. He writes Psalm 51 somewhere in there. And then he goes into the temple and he faces God again with a clean conscience. How is he capable of doing that? Many people today will commit murder and think God will never forgive me. Many people today will commit adultery and think God will never forgive me. Look at David. There's nothing 
big enough that God would say, I'm not going to listen to you. There's no, no, no sin except the one that I pointed out, which is another discussion for another day. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit where God would say, hey, this is unforgivable, man. You see, when we go to God and we say, well, I've done some bad things in my life. I don't think God's going to forgive me. Then we are we're making a mistake because we're assuming that our sin is larger than God's forgiveness. Let me be clear. It's not the size of the sin that determines God's forgiveness. But the size of God's compassion that does. You can bring God your sin. His compassion is big enough to cover that. And that's what David understood here. When David dealt with his sin, he immediately looked for God, his Savior. And he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. So when, when David looked at God, so David looked at his sin, and then he looked at God, and he sees God as a merciful God. He's a God who doesn't give you what you deserve. That's what mercy is. He sees God as a God filled with loving kindness. It's unfailing love. He never stops loving you. He loves you even in your sin. That's what the New Testament tells us. And he says, well, my God is a compassionate God. David says, he is in the, in the original, he says that oh, my God has got a multitude of tender mercies. Multitude of tender mercies. That's incredible, David. The word for mercy is compassion in the womb. That's the word David uses here. It's like my God feels about me like a mother feels for a baby in a womb. And mothers, you know how that feels, right? You want to protect it at, at all cost. Like a mother feels about her baby in a womb, so God feels about me in my sin. It's incredible. While we were still sinners, Paul says, God died for us. Christ died for us while we were still sinners. He didn't say, well, you stop sinning and then I'll die for you. He died while I was in my sin. While I was denying him. While I was an adulterer and a murderer. And David understands he's God this way. He sees the gravity of his sin. And then he looks to God. He says, I'm so thankful that you are bigger than this. And then he says, he's a saving God. And the word they use this, he's a rescuer. Paul understood that when he spoke about his sin. How will, who will rescue me from this body of sin? David understood that. He's our deliverer. God delivers us from evil. But he also deliver us, delivers us from our own evil. Think about that. God saves you from your own evil. Not just evil in other people. From your own evil, God says, I'll save you from that. God's mercy, His loving kindness, and His compassion is larger than the most grievous sin that you have ever committed. Therefore, forgiveness is guaranteed. He loves us more than we have offended Him. His mercy is larger than the crime that we've committed against Him. This is why David went directly to him without hesitation. Because he understood who his God was. That's why after seven days of repentance, he could go to God and worship him. Because he understood this is a forgiving God. A compassionate God. So, 
If you have sin, don't run away from God. Run to Him. Arrange a meeting with the compassionate and gracious God of the universe. Open it all up and unpack it in front of Him. He knows everything in any ways. And if you do that, you will see how everything changes. But it needs to happen with the correct attitude. And that brings us to the next and final point. Submit your spirit. See your sin. Seek your Savior. And submit your spirit. David says something to God that's absolutely incredible. He says to God, you do not delight in sacrifice. Or I would bring it. If you wanted a lamb, or you wanted me to bring a cow to the temple so you can forgive me for Bathsheba and forgive me for Uriah, I would do that if that's what you wanted. He says, you do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. I mean, I could have brought a burnt offering and burnt some stuff up for you. He says, you don't want this stuff. So what I'm bringing to you is this. My sacrifice, he says to God, is this, a broken spirit. I've been humbled. I've been made nothing. I'm the king of Israel. You've blessed me. But my sin has humbled me. And so I'm broken in front of you. And I'm bringing to you a broken and a contrite heart. And then he tells us something about the God that we worship. In case you didn't know this. You bring me chocolate. I will never say no. That's a guarantee for you. You bring me chocolate. I'll never say I can't say no. You've got your thing that you can't say no to, right? Hopefully. There's one thing that God cannot say no to. Do you see it in the text? A broken and a contrite heart is the one thing in the universe God cannot say no to. Let this sink in. God cannot say no to a broken, humble, honest heart. He has to respond. He has to. And this is the problem. We come before God with hard hearts. We come before God with hearts that love other things. But we don't come before God with an actual broken and honest heart. And we don't understand why he doesn't respond. David understood God. He didn't want sacrifices and offerings. He didn't want bulls and goats. And today, God doesn't want our time, treasure, and talent either. He's not waiting for those things before he'll forgive us. You know what he wants more than anything in the world is a broken heart. A contrite spirit. An honest inner being. The one thing that he cannot say no to. He cannot deny you. He cannot turn away from you. He cannot ignore you if you come to him with that broken down spirit. But what does that mean? In this context, David admits that he has been humbled. And he feels deep regret for what he has done. He's grieving his sin. He's sorrowful over what his hands had done. We call that godly repentance. And that leads to life. David admits, I'm a broken man on the inside. Here is a successful man that had all the reason in the world not to be humble. Great warrior, great king. The people praise him. He killed Goliath. But when he comes before God, he is nothing. That's why he's a man after God's own heart. 
because he can be strong and tough out there in the world. But when he comes before his God, he knows I'm nothing. I'm just a broken man, a sinner. God can do great things with a broken and a contrite heart. And David knows this. So he asks God. He makes a request to God. And ask yourself deeply this question. How often do you ask this of God? Have you ever asked this of God? I've got a broken heart, God. I'm coming to you. I'm a broken man. And I'm honest with you. I've made a mess. I am a mess. I'll probably stay a mess. Please create in me a pure heart. Yes, Father. Renew a steadfast spirit in me. He's broken. He's nothing. He says, Father, you need to rebuild this thing inside. Because when I follow what I have, I make a mess. I'm lustful. I commit murder. There's bloodshed on my hands. You need to change me. If you don't let God change you from the inside, you'll never be a changed person. David understood this. And he says, please, don't cast me from your presence. Please don't. And don't take your Holy Spirit from me. And the people say the Holy Spirit's not in the Old Testament. Here it is. Don't depart from me. Please stay close to me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. I need you. It's like coming to God. I'm, I'm bringing you all the pieces. Please put me back together. And refurbish my heart. Cut down. He uses in the original language. He says cut down the heart in me. And create in me a new one. I don't like the dirt in my heart. Please wash me, disinfect me, repair and rebuild the spirit in me to do what is right and to do what is good. Don't leave me. Stay with me. Don't turn your face away from me. Leave your Holy Spirit in me that I may be holy. Place salvation or joy in me. Let me feel the truth of your forgiveness. Let me know and experience the fact that you have set me free from my sin. Give me peace. Three points to close off with. Three tips. Number one, find someone that will love you enough to help you see your sin. Yeah, don't underestimate the value of that. That will lead you to a Psalm 51 type of prayer life. Number two, Find a regular time and place where you can submit your spirit. Bring your crushed heart to God. If you don't have a relationship with God in the inner room, I doubt whether you have a relationship with God in eternity. And lastly, find solace today in knowing that we have a God with compassion greater than all sin. And he's at our, he's right at the end of our prayers with our broken hearts and our contrite spirits. Psalm 119 verse 11 says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. What a powerful verse that we hear from David. I want to extend the invitation if anybody needs prayer based on what I've spoken about this morning. Do not hesitate to come forward. You know, the Catholics, oh, they've got a lot of mess going on in that, that religion. But one of the cool things I think that they have is that confession booth. 
where you go into this thing and there's somebody, a priest on the other side. And at least the people get to confess their sin. I wouldn't prefer that. I've had some good friends in my life that I can actually see. They don't have to hide behind something. And that love me. That I can actually talk to about my sin. And I want to encourage you to get somebody like that. It will be so valuable to you. And to be that for somebody else. But if this morning in any way you need some prayer, don't hesitate to come forward as we sing the closing song. Please stand.